You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason Palmer. And ladies and gentlemen, today I bring to you a new guest who has a lot of experience in the child welfare world. Um, I have Miss Avni Panchal. Hopefully I got that pronounced correctly. Uh, I practiced a couple times, guys, because as I've mentioned many times before, I'm great at mispronouncing names. Did I do a good job? Yes, you did. Excellent. Excellent. So we've got Miss Panchal here today to talk about um, foster care and and what she has seen as a need inside of this, because as a former um, social worker, she had a lot of view from an angle I don't often see. Um, I'm a foster parent. I have kids come into my house. I met some great social workers. I have met some horrible social workers. Um, I'm not going to name names. Don't worry. But, <laughs> but, but I've had social workers who've never seen the kid. I've had social workers who you couldn't get a hold of, or if you did, they would promise to get back to you and never do that. And we've had some who were truly amazing, who worked their butts off to try and, and get the kid's life locked up and taken care of as soon as they could so they can find some permanency. So sometimes I'll say I love social workers when, when they're out there working for kids and they frustrate the crap out of me when they're not. But I understand that that whole view was totally different than mine because I imagine you are somewhat of an expert in doing paperwork from that experience. <laughs> I definitely think so. So I worked in child welfare for about 10 years, eight years of direct practice um, and in a couple different counties. And now I train social workers in um, as they're starting their journey in child welfare. I also teach at San Francisco State in their social work department specific to child welfare classes. And I have my own private practice where I um, see individuals and couples in my practice and do consulting work. Um, and I'm very big now. The shift that I'm trying to make as a social worker is from social worker to therapist. In the last couple of years, I've been doing that more primarily full time. So, yes, learned a lot. Uh, definitely. I think it's one of the toughest jobs out there um it's also the most rewarding job out there but it does you know it, it's it's high case loads and requires a lot of just strength and willpower of you as a social worker so i know anyone who's working in the field is very aware of the bureaucratic process that is also part of it especially if you ever get to work on an icpc case I have done a couple of those. So th yes, that is the interstate compact agreement between states where you approve relatives or non-relatives for family, for foster youth um, to be approved to live in another state. And yeah, those are definitely require a lot of coordination and collaboration. 
I believe federal law requires that all that paperwork be handwritten and then sent to the other state by carrier pigeon. Is that correct? Because <laughs> so I would think process. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's a process. I think they are, and depending once again, I think a lot of this is going to be caveat asterisk depending on your county and what the process is and what state it, you're looking at. Uh, but yes, I think a lot of paperwork is required for you to start the process and have that contact contract agreement with another state. Yeah, we, we had one little girl stay with us who um, she came to us because they needed a placement and she was going to send her to her grandparents place. And she would have been there in the afternoon, except that they lived 10 miles on the other side of the state line or a few miles inside of Missouri. They're 10 miles into the state of Illinois. That brought about the ICPC process, and she was with us for months and months and months and months because that's what it took for her to be able to to go live in her grandparents' place, which I thought was quite frankly horrible because she knew these people. She loved them. This is like grandma and grandpa whom she loves, and and we had some visits and that sort of things, but still, like that's where she really should have been, but because the government is obviously trying to protect the kids and, and get all the, the safeguards in place. And I understand that, but bureaucracy oftentimes makes the best thing difficult. I think is the best way of looking at it. It's necessary, but man, it's hard. So yeah, it's yeah. It definitely lengthens the process a little bit for sure. I think a lot of these policies are good intention. And then when it comes into practice, because we're not, you know, it may not be thought of the 10 minutes, 10 miles away from the state line, which is going to create that um, process. I think health insurance is another place where that bureaucracy process comes in. And so good intentions, but how it's in practice looks very different. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I, I, I'll join the next person to complain about the way the government doesn't work super efficiently. I mean, just go do your taxes by yourself once and, and you'll agree that the government's not always great at, at, at doing that stuff, but I also understand that what they're doing is attempting to avoid problems. So as much as I'd love to complain about it, it's there's it's there for a reason. And it's part of what we have to do to be certain that uh, the kids are taken care of properly. So I'll complain a little bit, but I understand the reasoning for it. So you got into the world of training social workers. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Because I would love to be in that class because I, I, I feel like I could give all the other advice <laughs> and it seems like they don't get but i also know that i I feel like you're probably giving them a lot of information already and and that's a difficult part yeah and i'll speak for california specifically because that's been my experience i know different states have different things so in california and this is through the adoption safe family act where they just wanted federal and this is federal government really wanting well how are you really doing the work how are you promoting safety permanency and well-being which are sort of these three massive tenants in child welfare for children and family and they wanted to know well how is this happening in action so california particularly took it as well we need something that's a standardized training because it looks very different for a major county like los angeles Versus a county that's up in the mountains in Shasta or, you know, El Dorado or something like that. So um, there is this core curriculum that happens for child welfare workers. And this is something that you go through regardless of what county you're in. There's a standardized set of trainings that you take 
Uh, there are different regional agencies that get it, um, that provide these trainings with tra- social workers and trainers who present those trainings. And so there's a whole curriculum that social workers are introduced to. I also am a Title IV recipient, which essentially that means federal government has very specific funding when you're in the graduate program to make your concentration specifically child welfare focused. And so um, the idea is you're getting a stipend for two years and then you're committing to work with county for two years, which is where I started my career. And that program specifically sort of starts training you from your grad program to be working in child welfare. So a lot of my internship was focused on foster youth in my first year and even my second year I worked for a county internship and and my some of my classes were also specific to child welfare so I've been doing this since 2009 really if I count uh you know my graduate experience um and so it just was a really beautiful transition for me to kind of figure out okay what do I do next if direct practice isn't what I'm going to continue to do? How do I still stay connected to the system? And training was a lovely way for me to kind of bridge that gap because I still wanted to do the work, but I wanted it to look a little different for me. So that's how I kind of got involved in it. So what drew you to to working with kids and kids from hard places, especially? That's such a, (laughs) that's such a big question and we could go so long answering that um so right now in terms of direct practice specifically um that would look like working with parents um that would look like offering trainings to social workers that would look like um you know consulting with agencies that are working with foster youth or foster families so that's a little bit of my angle today in the past, as I said, in my career, I've definitely worked as a social worker, held a caseload, made recommendations to the court. I've been an emergency response worker who's knocked on doors to investigate allegations of abuse or neglect. And I've also been an adoption worker or a court dependency worker. So there's been many different units that I was part of um, while I was working. Um, so that piece was definitely something that I started with. And over time, now I run my own practice, private practice. And so that is where most of my work is today, is the mental health component for kids and families. You know, you mentioned mental health. I I don't know that a kid comes into care without some level of trauma. I don't think it's possible to bring a kid in without, without having some trauma. If it, if at least it's just the loss of first family, Mm -hmm. that's a trauma. Most of the kids that do come into care, I mean, I'm certain as, as somebody who's knocked on doors, you've, you've uh, seen plenty of cases um, where, I mean, I'm going to be honest, we've been reported on, I think, twice now, where, mm-hmm. where they get here, they do their thing, and you learn just to sit back, you let them do their thing, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's an unfounded report, and one time it was, it was um, we'll say, a family member who was angry with us over something completely unrelated, and I'm certain that you have seen plenty of those and, and you've probably seen plenty of the other type, you know, where, where you walk in and you see lots of trauma in, in a house, you know, so that's been primarily, we, we haven't seen anything that was really an unfounded allegation that, that ended real quick. You know, that's, that's, I mean, let's be honest. I know social workers have a caseload that's ridiculously heavy most of the time anyways, and they're busy 
and they don't have time to to just go like steal kids out of houses for funsies um they tend to come in for a reason and so our kids you know i'm gonna say every one of our kids at some point has has had some level of therapy um and well all except for the littlest ones because the two littles are seven months and i think 18 months i don't know a year and a half we'll call her a year and a half old that's easiest for me to remember so that they're not you know they're not doing any kind of therapy at this point you know but but there's going to be some some needs there at some point and we're fully aware of that and it's so important i think for anybody who is a foster parent or who is looking and considering becoming a foster parent to realize that the idea when you come into this that these kids really just need love they need somebody to love them that's true but the just that's that's they just need no that's not all they need they need they need help you know um so so what kind of what kind of things have, have you you worked with kids through like diagnoses and and stuff like that so as a social worker in child welfare we definitely are not the ones diagnosis that diagnosing them because we're more think of us sort of the middle individual that's kind of collaborating all the services for the individual, whether that's with foster family or community providers. So that diagnosis wasn't coming from me, it would usually be a clinician. Now that I'm in the, I I am a licensed clinical social worker today. And so with the state of California, I I do have the ability to diagnose someone if I wanted to in my practice. As a social worker, a lot of us, um, unless you are licensed, don't have the ability to simply make a diagnosis. However, to your point, yes, kids are coming in with trauma. That is absolutely a given. And I, I don't make such a blanket statement lightly, but yes, even the simple act of trauma, even the act of being removed is traumatic for a child. So um there's definitely a lot of services that are put in place to be what we call trauma informed and essentially that simply means how am i looking at someone's behavior from what is wrong with you to essentially what's happened to you and um, there's a book out by dr bruce perry and oprah winfrey right now around what has happened to you um, that's very big on trauma informed and really trying to get people to understand so from your perspective as a foster parent, yes, they do have, children do have a lot of needs, especially if they're coming from foster care. And how do we take a pause, take a step back and understand, okay, what is really going on here? Because sometimes those behaviors may be some pretty normal, uh, often pathologized in the sense where, you know, a three-year-old is throwing a tantrum, a temper tantrum. And if they're foster youth, it's sort of elevated to, oh, and it must be their trauma. And I'm not negating that in any way, shape, or form, because absolutely that could possibly come from their trauma. And it may also be important to recognize three-year-olds have a temper tantrum, and that may also be a normal behavior. Um, So how do you sort of balance this, not just as a foster parent, but even service providers and social workers and therapists? How do you balance what's normal development and what may be sort of these underlying things happening because of their lived experience? Yeah, we our godson is over today, and I love this little dude, right? He he is so much fun. He is cute. He's adorable. He is a lot of fun. He'll come in here, and I have this big 
box of cashews that I get from the grocery store on about a weekly basis and he'll sit on my lap and, and he wants pieces and, and we'll sit here and play trucks. And today we, you know, we, the trucks wrecked and we had a, a blast and, and all that because he, he's, he just turned three. And what most people forget is that the terrible twos start at about two years old. Um, mm-hmm. They also last for about two years. And, <laughs> and I will tell you when he decides that they'll fit, oh man, look out. Now I know this boy. I know his parents. His parents were, went to high school with our son and we have been kind of the, the surrogate and mom and dad kind of figure for a lot of these kids go, going through that stage. And we, we become godparents of this little guy. I know him. He does not have like big trauma in his life. He has good parents. He has a steady life. He has a dad who loves him and thinks the world of him. He has a mom who like she, when she brings him over in the afternoon, it breaks her heart because she has to go to work for a couple hours and he'll stay here while she's at work. He doesn't have a lot of trauma and he still throws temper tantrums from time to time. Yeah. It's partly because he's in the midst of the terrible twos and, and that's, that's where we're at. So yes, that's for sure. Something that we all have to pay attention to because I see posts sometimes about, you know, I have this, you know, this foster daughter who's, who's 16 years old and she, she doesn't want to listen and, and she won't answer my questions. And I'm like, um, I have bio kids <laughs> who do that. I don't think it's trauma. I, I think the trauma they're experiencing is called, is called puberty. Um, it's the teen years that they're just yeah. going to do that. And, and the, the trauma in their world can exacerbate that for sure, but it doesn't mean it caused all of it. Sometimes. I mean, now I never caused any problems as a teenager. I was an angel and I can only say that because <laughs> my mother is not here to argue because she would, <laughs> but yeah, that that's, that's really an interesting thing when you look at it though. But a lot of these kids are going to need some level of therapy, counseling, some sort of help to work through some of the stuff they have. And as a kid of the 80s and 90s, I can say that trauma wasn't a word back then. Um, Mm -hmm. Trauma was just that that was the center at the hospital where you went if you were in a really bad car wreck. And, And therapists was you know if you went to a head shrinker there was there was a joke attached to that you know Mm -hmm. we we didn't think any highly of that at all and in today's world i do see some of the stigma coming back off of that thankfully because i will be the first person to tell you that like we've got a guy amanda and i we've got a guy and once a month we go see dr tom and the dude is a freaking genius i love dr tom and he has been an integral part of our, our life and our own traumas because we've been through some stuff and yeah. it's needed and we can do that and even talk about it on a public platform and nobody will even think blink an eye about it, but yeah. it's in some, in some cultures and some people and some areas, you know, folks still will, will push back against the idea of, of kids needing mental help, um, mental health help at, at that age. You know, so how how do we destigmatize that in this in this strange world where, you know, I mean, let's be honest, social media has changed the landscape, but mm-hmm. unfortunately, the ones that they're all watching and paying attention to on TikTok are convincing them that they're a time traveler from the future. Come back to <laughs> tell us what we're going to. <laughs> um. Yeah, stigma is real. Um. To your point. 
And I know you're giving an example of like 80s and 90s when you experienced it. But I think to your point, there are absolutely some cultures that it's still very real even today. Like I know I'm a woman of color. I identify as Asian Indian. And I know there's this massive stigma in my culture around therapy. I know that's changing with my generation and the generation after me and hopefully the ones after me as well. Um, but, you know, there is this stigma around I, if I'm going to need professional help, that means that I am not able to do this on my own, that I'm not independent or, you know, strong willed, whatever, fill in the blank with whatever is going through that individual's mind. And I think um, especially for foster parents and and I would even say service providers and social workers, how do you normalize that experience of hey, it's normal that you have a lot of emotions coming up because you've been removed or that you're in another person's home. Even if this foster parent is very loving and caring, it's a different environment than what you are living in. That brings up anxiety. That brings up confusion. That brings up questions. And so how do we as adults normalize that experience for our children, whether they're hitting puberty or whether they're in kindergarten or elementary school. I think a lot of this also depends on us modeling that if we're not okay, that we ask for help. And if I'm an adult in that, in that situation, and I'm not necessarily sharing any of my emotions or feelings, even if I can intellectually say no therapy is important, and I absolutely, you know, want to destigmatize it. Well, what's your behavior behind it? Because if you're not expressing those feelings with your child or your foster youth, you are sort of sending this message of, yeah, but we don't talk about these things. And so I think it's going to be very important um, for us to, as adults, figure out how do we normalize these conversations? And I just want to kind of also say, trauma is such a big word where I've, in my experience, had many children, they don't want to associate with the word trauma, because it brings up these feelings of then there must be something wrong with me. And so sometimes it's also important to use their language, maybe they're not calling it trauma, but maybe they're calling it, that was a really bad time in my life. And how do we still keep with the language that they want to use rather than shift it to say, no, that was really traumatic because maybe they're not ready to use that language. And that goes for abuse and neglect as well. I had many children that maybe weren't ready to, you know, say the word abuse or neglect because they were wanting to really still love their parents who, I mean, that's a very normal thing that happens. And so how do we still create that balance? Yes, we have seen that in our own experience. You know, kids definitely want to still have a connection with a bio parent. And it says nothing about me as a, as a, as a human because yeah. this kid wants the connection with their bio parent. Um, that, that was definitely one of the struggles that I feel like, you know, me are in, in our um, oldest, yeah, get it right here, the oldest of our adopted kids. Or pretty close to true. I guess we'll put it that way. Um, his his father died due to a, a violent murder, and I I don't get to go be his his replacement dad, and I realize that. But that was really hard for him to to think that way. I think I think that was something that really caused him a lot of struggles, and I didn't have that. I didn't have that that uh that perspective to begin with. I didn't even think about that because. 
well, why would I? Nobody, nobody murdered my dad. And I never, I never went through the things he went through. And it caused, it took me a while to figure out that that was, that was a problem in our relationship. And, and we had to figure out how to talk about that out loud, like two human beings, not like, not like the guy who's saying, look, I, this is the way it is. And you're going to listen to me because everybody in this house calls me dad, but we had to talk about it like two human beings. And that was, man, I didn't know it was that hard to talk to people like human beings sometimes, but sometimes it really can be because you're put in, in difficult places with lots of trauma around lots of crazy stigmatized things. Nobody wants to, to talk about the elephant in the room. And I think we also come from a culture where it's very, we want things to be sorted in a particular way. And we want those black and white answers where sometimes life is much more gray than it is black and white. And so when we're kind of confronted and how do I have a both and moment, it can feel really sort of turmoil for our brains because it's trying to sort it out in either or when we really need to be both and about things. You know, I wish I could say I always understood that, but it took me a long time to figure out the difference between either or and both and because, Mm -hmm. you know, what is it? I was reading something online the other day that was talking about, you know, we, we, we're looking at at like technology is taking all these leaps and jumps and quantum computing is, is like this huge, amazing thing that's going to make our world a whole different world. I mean, it's going to be a different experience within 10 years for certain. And it's because they figured out a way to use the both end model in, in computing. And we can use that same power to look at our life and realize, Hey, this is difficult. You know, as of the time we're recording this, just, I don't know, a few hours back, we were actually in court for a a TPR hearing for, for one of the kids. And, you know, it's really easy to look at it and go like, look, dude, you did this, that like when the, when the, um, the service, processor showed up to because they, they served us for some reason this time for us to show up in court. And, um, and like the guy was kind of, kind of rude to my wife when he handed the papers and eventually he figured out that we were the foster placement, but I think he had looked at the papers and thought like, holy crap, these people are not good people because they didn't paint a very, a very, you know, wonderful picture of, of what they, cause they, they were people who'd been through a lot and, and they were not capable of taking care of a child. And then we sit in the court and the guy is talking and you watch him and you realize that right now, I I don't know his personal backstory. I don't know what traumas led him to the choices that he made, but it's really easy to go. Yeah. You like this beautiful baby over here. You just left this child in trauma. But at the same time, I don't know that he's not a child of trauma himself. Who's never had any help to work his way through it. And you have to hold both of those pieces in tension at the same moment. And it's not comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, intergenerational trauma is real. We could also even talk about how systems have impacted people's trauma even further. Because, you know, how, how much conversation are we having in our school system around trauma-informed practice? What is their understanding of foster youth and their experience? What is the medical uh, system's understanding? We could talk about the incarceration and you know the disproportionality that black and brown individuals face at a higher rate in all very punitive ways. So 
yes, that is absolutely real. Disproportionality in foster care in any state and county is real. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. I, I would also be really curious on what has been their story and really going back to that main question of what's happened to you instead of what's wrong with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of the things that, that I've learned just dealing with the, the school system that our kids have gone through is I think most school districts in the country at this point have the um, trauma informed moniker on them. And I think that most school districts do the best they can with providing an intellectual understanding of, of what trauma informed really means. I don't know that they can truly understand what trauma is until you've lived it. And having lived in a house with somewhere around 30 different kids come, come, come through our house. And, you know, we, we've kept, we've adopted a number of them, uh, but still at the same time, like we've lived with the outworking of their trauma, not with their, you know, not with their original trauma, but just living with that and seeing how different that is in their life. I've got a, I talk about my little guy, Frankie, a lot. Um, Frankie, when you get old and you listen to this, buddy, just know I love the crap out of you, dude. Uh, Frankie, he is, he just turned eight. All right. And I joke that when the DSM six comes out, there will be a new diagnosis, ADHD, AF. You're going to be just as ADHD as Frankie. Like his, his little brain is moving a million miles a second. And he is a great example. The 80, 20 rule, 80% of the time, this boy is amazing. He is happy. He is having fun. He is just a great kid. And 20% of the time, some of the trauma leaks out. And, mm-hmm. and those days are hard. But you have to yeah. you have to learn to understand when you see that trauma leak out that what you're seeing is, in a, you know, as a, as a teacher or somebody who works with kids, you have to understand that what you're seeing isn't a bad kid. Mm-hmm. You're seeing a kid who is put in a place by, by an irresponsible adult that caused some trauma that did damage in their brain and will work its way out as different behaviors across their life that they have to deal with now. Yeah. And that's yeah. a difficult viewpoint to keep. I also, I used to tell foster parents all the time because there's a honeymoon phase that happens when the kid is in your home and things are going well. And then there's a testing phase. And sometimes that testing phase is really for a very long time. It's there. Um, and I remember, you know, when foster parents, like they're saying X, Y, Z, and it's like, no, that's good because they're actually giving you an opportunity and space to show consistency. Um, and that's actually going to connect you even further. If, if this moment of sort of turmoil that's coming up is handled with love and care. Um, and I've seen that with adoption too, where, you know, kids who are being adopted, there's definitely excitement. And then over the years, it could be during puberty that you now start seeing these behaviors show up in a way that you maybe haven't seen it in the beginning. And I hope that, you know, foster parents and actually, as I've said, service providers, social workers, teachers can really understand, okay, that was a really big reaction to something that felt minute what's the underlying thing here? What's what's going on that I haven't necessarily uncovered? And so even trauma-informed practice, you're right, there's so many, you know, the schools have that moniker, other systems have that moniker. 
And I also think like, well, what does that mean in terms of practicality? Because it can sort of be this very theoretical framework and sort of be a buzzword. I think of it from a very practical standpoint. If someone is showing a particular behavior that feels elevated than what the response is, how do I slow down and simply ask myself, what is happening in terms of the behavior? What might be going on that's kind of bringing up this behavior? Have I missed anything else? If you are simply asking those three questions, you are essentially practicing trauma-informed care. And that's a very watered-down version, and I'm not saying now you're an expert in that, but even that simple practice allows you to, you know, really come from a place of, I'm going to slow down, because our immediate human reaction in those moments, and if you've had a long day, you're tired, it's going to be even more frustration, which sort of, you know, is not taking you in a place where you want to be. Yeah, I have a friend of mine. He is a uh, he is a world champion archer, and he has a tattoo down his forearm of an arrow. And I love what it says because it has nothing to do with archery. Um, it, it says, "Always shoot for the heart." And we talked about it one day, and he said, "You know, you you have two choices. You can either try and win the argument, or you can try <laughs> and win their art their heart. Which one are you shooting for?" And I went, "You know, yeah." Yeah, I don't, I don't, that makes me feel a little bit convicted because at that time I'm like, I, I don't think I, I hadn't really applied that to the world that, that we have here. And I went, oh yeah, I see a lot of times where I have crazy behaviors. Mm-hmm. I have one little guy right now who, um, he, he's about nine years old. I think is, is how old he is. And he had some, he had a decent level of trauma in his backstory and, and I see things sometimes come from him that are way out of proportion. Mm-hmm. And it's like, dude, first off, come here. Let's let's not yell at each other. Let's just talk. How about you sit on my lap for a second? Let's just breathe. And can we just talk? Because mm-hmm. I don't want to yell at you. I don't think you really want to yell at me. What the heck's going on, dude? What what's the big deal? And you know, and and his brother took his spot when he went to the bathroom or so, something like that. But there's this huge blow up. And I mean, we're getting ready to go to knuckles here be over a spot. And I'm like, Whoa, whoa, hang on now to be fair. My mom didn't find out until years later, but my sister and I, when, when my mom would go to work and would leave us at home, sometimes I'm pretty certain we've both been drug out of a chair by the hair at some point. Cause, cause we acted a fool too. But, but the, I see big, big reactions sometimes on things that don't make that much sense. Yeah. And, and a lot of times I have to stop and go, okay, if this doesn't make sense to me, it probably makes sense to him that this mm-hmm. reaction is going on because he feels something that he doesn't understand. So let's, let's see if we can't dig that root out. So and one of the, go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. And one of the things that happens when it comes to trauma is we have the sympathetic ner- nervous system and parasympathetic nervous system. Your parasympathetic nervous system is really trying to get you to regulate your emotions, you know, feel that calm and peace. And so if you, because of your lived experience with whatever trauma that's happened, if you haven't been able to develop that system, that is what's happening sometimes is, you know, over time, like if I've been, like if I was crying as a baby and my parents or caregivers were 
giving me attention during that time. Maybe it was me wanting to be fed. Maybe I needed to change my diaper. And that's in baby phase, but that kind of goes even further. Like, you know, when I'm crying and throwing a tantrum, am I being received? Am I giving that attention, given that attention? The more and more that's happening, the more and more I am developing that system and able to have a very strong regulated system. When I've had trauma and I haven't received that consistently, it, I'm still learning how to regulate the system. And so it, it makes total sense to me that those big reactions can come up because I'm still developmentally getting to a place where I feel like I can self-regulate. And I see this in adults too, because I work, I do a lot of work now with adults where you could be any age and now you're realizing, oh, I haven't really had the self-awareness to self-regulate and self-manage because I'm still getting more aware of why did I react in that particular way? You know, I have met 50-year-old men who have not yet figured out that they don't know how to re-regulate their emotions. <laughs> it's so disheartening when you meet guys like that and you're like, whoa, hang on, dude, let's Let's back up like past square one, the, the other side of square one, whatever we're going to call that, because it's a quote that I saw somewhere. It probably came from Karen Purvis, um, but it was something along the lines of a dysregulated adult cannot re-regulate a dysregulated child. And that's why I think it is so important if anybody is even thinking about working with kids of trauma, that you take the time to do your own work. Because if you have buttons that they can push, to get you into that dysregulated space. I'm sorry, but they're going to find them. I don't care how good you hide them. They, they found kids are very intelligent and very resilient. And I think they're also, you know, trying to see, are you really here for me? And if that means I know this button, I really want to see how you'd react. They're going to take that option, not out of, even though it feels like manipulation sometimes, it really is at the core of it is, are you really here for me? Because that's what I need to know. It's been my experience that most of these kids don't really, you know, don't really know that they're loved in a deep way because of the trauma, you know, not to say anything terrible against their bio parents mm -hmm. because they may have done the best that they know how to do with all the tools they have. But these kids have been not only, you know, through whatever trauma brought them into the system, but then they got ripped out of their, their, their home and they're in a place that they don't really, really know if they've ever truly been loved. And I talked to the guy recently, um, by the time this episode airs, you'll have heard, um, heard the story and, um, oh, what was his name? I'll think of it here in a second. Um, Philip Harder. And that's one of the points that he talked about was that he felt you know, he, he was in the, in the foster system for the better part of his childhood. And he yeah. left the system and, and beat the odds. He, he left the system. He was never adopted. He never had that, that permanent home. And he's been through college. He, he was a pastor. He's like, his life is, is, has been like one of those exception stories because most kids don't walk through that and end up in a good place. And, and that's one thing he said was that he always kind of felt like he didn't know why he wasn't good enough for anyone to love him. And I think that's probably a common theme amongst these kids. 
And one of the base, one of the major things that research shows time and time again is even if that child has one connection that is giving them that consistency, that is, you know, helping with their mental health and well-being and them understanding just not only their trauma, but even creating that safe space, even having one connection, if you have more than one, even better. But even if you have one connection, it really makes a make significant um, positive impact on children's lives. So I even talk about as a social worker, because I'm very big on, yes, I'm, you know, wanting children to be in the least restrictive placement. That means with their parents, if that's not happening, are there relatives? Are there non-relative caregivers that they could be with before they are put in foster placement where they don't know anyone? And I'm not saying anything about foster parents because this is really hard work and I commend every single person that is doing it. And there is so much research out there where family and staying with family does have really massive positive outcomes. And there's legal um, policies around this as well, where we really want to make sure kids are in their families. Having said that, if that isn't an option and they're going to be in a foster placement, how are we incorporating their community, whether it's aunts and uncles or grandparents, how are we incorporating them in terms of visitation, even if they can't be a placement option? Because to your point, we want to make sure they see their community and their in a place where they feel represented. Yeah, we've, um, our little guy, Turtle, Turtle is mixed. Um, his, his dad was black, his mom was white. And we have kind of, we, we really tried to keep some of his bio family in the loop where we can. And, you know, right now, let's see, a couple of our other kids are, are mixed as well. And so one of our older sons, his best friend in the world has a little brother who's the same age as our little guy. And, and, and their, their dad is Duke is his name. Duke's a great guy. He is a great role model for these kids. He gets up every day and goes to work. He takes care of his kids. He is like, he is a, the down to earth guy that you, you want to have around for your kids to meet. And Duke's a black man. And I love the fact that we can keep people in his life that look like him and, and whatever we can of, of family whenever possible, just to have that, that normalcy around them because I think it's, um, it's Josh ship. Uh, do you know who Josh ship is? You've probably seen him somewhere on YouTube. The man has about a thousand, um, videos out there where he's, he's told his, his story of his time in foster care as a young kid. And the, the line that he is most known for, I think is every child is one caring adult away from a success story. And I think that is so true. That is just so true. And when it's possible, if you have a kid who does look different, who does have some different cultural things in their life. If you can bring that part of their life in and not ignore the fact that they may look different from the other kids in their community, that's super helpful as well. Yeah. There's an exercise we used to do in adoptions around, you know, who is the doctor that you go see? Who is, you know, where's your grocery store and what, how, you know, what's the diversity around that? who's part of your schooling system that this kid is going to be part of. And it, it was really for folks to sort of understand how much diversity do they have? How, and, and if they don't have as much, 
how are they bringing that in the mix, whether it's the doctor or the nurse or the teacher? Um, because, it, you know, you are modeling the behavior for your children. So I love that you have representation for your kids because sometimes that's not there. And, and even that with all the love and care, there is something that that child is going to feel different about if they're not feeling represented. Yeah, our little guy is, uh, he wanted to play flag football for the first time this year because he's of the age he can play that. Um, he, and we got him signed up for a team. And thank God, because sports can be a great thing for kids, don't get me wrong, but sometimes the coaches lose their friggin' minds more than a little. I'm just going to say that. And they get stupid about the sports stuff sometimes. And and the coach for his particular team is a black man. He is a great guy. And it's I love having good role models around that that look different because because it's the truth is and if you look at our family our family is is a great example of it you know my my wife amanda she is painfully white she makes she makes a shade sheet of paper look tan um her, her maiden name was mcclanahan and she lives up to that irish moniker very well um physically speaking and i am just kind of ambiguously brown and so we have a really ridiculously diverse looking family because we have white kids we have mixed kids we we have the, all the colors of the rainbow in our family and i think it's so important for kids to realize that and i think this generation may be the, the generation that's going to start to realize it that it doesn't really matter so much what you look like on on the outside you got to learn what's on the inside that's what what actually matters because man there are some horrible people out there let's just stay away from them let's let's just be you know prejudiced against the bad people it's so much better that way. I just, I don't want people around my kids who, who, who promote hate because honestly, hate's never the answer. And that that's been my experience is that that's our job is to, is to show kids that what really matters has nothing to do with the color of your skin or the culture you're raised in. And there's no such thing as black enough or white enough or you know, Mexican enough or none, none of that. All that is a bunch of, a bunch of racial things that you can get as conspiratorial as you want as to who, who promotes that, but is promoted out there in this world. And the truth of the matter is at the end of the day, what matters is if you're a decent human being. And if you are, we can be friends and we can do life together. I'd love to, but I don't want to do life with you. If you're a horrible human, that's what I care about. Yeah. And I think I would say yes with an asterisk because I think for people, stories are very important. Their lived experience is very important. So I know for me to not being able to have my representation as an Indian person, is it's really hard to kind of pick that apart. Um, and so yes to your idea of coming with love because I think that is important. And so how do we also come with love for the people that maybe are really bringing up hate and and that doesn't mean you have to have those conversations in that very second maybe it's a boundary maybe you need some space but it is also going to be important for us as a nation to move forward to have these difficult conversations because stories matter representation matters it also is very important for people to have you know, their journeys being validated and believed. And I think a lot of times with the best of intentions where people are wanting to see the humanness of all of us, 
sometimes we're we haven't necessarily acknowledged people's stories and what their experiences have been. And I think that acknowledgement is going to be really critical and important before we get to the humanity of all of us and wanting to come from a place of love. Because I absolutely agree that is the direction we need to go. And I kind of put a little asterisk because as a person of color, I cannot just remove that identity from my experience of being a human and being a person of color. And I really hope that people are acknowledged in their stories and sort of believed when things are happening, that maybe is a microaggression, um, even if there was an intention to harm them in that way. Yeah, we, we all have different stories. And I have a guy that I work with a while back. Um, he looked at me now, as, as you can tell, the listeners can, but you can see me. I am not an easily distinguishable nationality culture. You, you can't figure out where, where I came from. Um, and I did the DNA test because I was kind of curious myself. And to be honest, uh, they kind of drew a circle around a large area uh, around Europe-ish, bigger than that, and said, oh, yeah, you're kind of from all that. And, and, and this guy is, he is your state. You know, we're in rural Missouri. And he's your standard, you know, kind of visually speaking, he's a white guy with red hair. And he said to me one day, I don't think that racism really exists anymore in America. And he earned like a a 30 minute lecture at that point, (laughs) because I was like, well, that's because you don't see it, you know, because you're, you're the guy who doesn't, doesn't experience it. But let me tell you about what we've been through, you know, what we've seen and the things we, it every bit 100% exists still in America. And we don't need to pretend like it doesn't or it hasn't. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to treat other people as if it doesn't matter to us. And, you know, if you're going to bring hate, because we, we've, we found the sun downtown here in, in Northern Missouri once by accident, um, didn't know those still existed until we, we found that one. But you know, in those moments, okay, I'm not trying to preach love and stuff here. I'm just trying to make certain that our family gets, gets away from a a situation that could be potentially dangerous as quickly as possible and safely. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit in, in the victimhood of that and cry and whine and talk about how, you know, the whole world is so horrible. I'm going to try and just make certain that everything I do leaves the world a better place. Because I can't change that that little town, um, the entire town, from what I understand, the, at, at one point, the entire population of all of the black people who lived in that town were in the correctional facility in town. Otherwise, they weren't allowed to live in that town. It was kind of an unspoken rule. And, and so they, they had to live with that. And I'm not going to change those people. I am just not. And I saw some stuff when the Mike Brown riots were happening a while back. I mean, that happened here in the St. Louis area. I saw people on social media posting things and holding up signs with horrible racial slurs and things that made me like angry just to look at. And I'm like, yeah, you're not going to change those people. I can't change them. All I can do is live my life in a way that shows them that mm, you might be a little off the mark because I don't look like you and I can still be a good human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's just, that's the only power we really have in this situation. But I will also say that for a guy who lives in a, in a small town in rural Missouri, we have a ridiculously diverse community here. And my kids' friends through, throughout middle school and high school, I mean, I, I don't, I don't 
I don't think we have a whole lot of Asians in this area. I haven't seen many, many Asian families around here, but it's, it's pretty diverse. And I've had almost every race and nationality kid show up at the house at some point in time. And they're, they seem to just be friends and they don't seem to care too much about the race, the racial makeup of, of who someone is. And I love that, that, that we are beginning in rural Missouri of all places to blend that and to stop caring about the silly stuff. Yeah, that's lovely that it's there's that much integration that's happening. Yeah, and I love the fact that, you know, that, that we can just work through that. And, and I see our kids' generation being the generation that's beginning to make that shift. It's definitely not done. Don't get me wrong. I know it's not done yet. But we're beginning to see, see the outworking of the work of people in the past. I think our our kids' generation also has the most information than ever before. And so, you know, understanding racism, microaggressions, equity, inclusion, diversity, what does it mean to live um, as a person of color in the United States in different demographics? There's so many stories, so much information out there that, kids have access to that I don't remember having access to at the level that they have, um, which I think is beautiful because the more we understand each other's stories, the more education we have, I think that's what's going to get us to a place of, I hear you, I see you, I believe you, um, which is where we foster connections. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, I can't be held responsible for everybody else's actions, just mine. Thank God I'm not responsible for them. But but that that's my duty is to just raise my kids to be good human beings and to understand there's always going to be some bad ones out there. I mean, if you go back into ancient ancient writings, I mean, Cain got mad at Abel and killed him with, with a stone. And so hate and anger has been around since the beginning. And I don't think that that's going to go away anytime soon. And people, some people will always look for a reason to be angry and always look for a reason to take power and control over other folks. But it only has a power that we allow it to have. And as long as we operate in from a place of love and, and taking care of one another as best as we can, we, we don't have to worry about that too much. All we have to do is, is just, have the 51%, you know, have the majority of people who, who care about one another in a way that matters. And I love that that's what you've done, what you've done with your work and working with, with people who need that help, regardless of who they are, whether, and, and even today working with adults, working with children, you know, through your work as, as a social worker, because those are all the populations that we all need help. Let's just be honest. We all need it. And you seem to have taken on, and I think nothing. I don't think I heard you mention was was geriatric care, and um, you know, if if you want to get into that job, give it a few years, and I'm going to need some of that at some point. I'm certain. <laughs> <laughs> I I definitely see adults, and so I don't have a like. No, I'm not taking a certain population of people. It just happens to be that my clientele has been mostly young adults to mid age adults um and i've not necessarily promoted that to be the only uh you know group that i'm seeing but it's just been happenstance that that's that's 
um, who's coming. And it's funny that you mentioned with the love piece, because my practice is name, strength, and self-love, because I really do believe in this idea and notion of recognizing your inner strength and, and practicing self-love, which even that is such a buzzword, but the reality is self-love could look very different for different people. It could look like you asking for help. It could look like you saying no to something that you don't want to do. It could look like saying yes to something that you've been really scared to do. And all of that is self-love as well. So I'm very big on making things a little bit more practical and understandable um, for people that I work with. Absolutely. Because I found that then when I find things that, that I'm being pushed into that, that aren't, you know, don't make me go, Oh yeah, that's what I want to do. Then it's, it needs to be an, Oh no. I mean, my wife and I, we, we've fostered a lot of, you know, for some reason we're kind of, um, if you have a baby who is substance exposed at birth, we're like one of the first calls apparently, because we see a lot of those, but we're good with that. That's where our skill set sets so squarely. Now I did get a phone call here a while back for a, uh, you know, from a social worker who was looking for a placement for a 15 year old boy. And I just had to say, no, no. And she, she kept it. You, you know, you know, the difficulty of placing a child and they're trying to, and I get what she's doing. I said, no, you don't understand I have a 15 year old girl. I'm not putting a 15 year old boy in my house. I don't care what a story is. <laughs> you know, I'm just not doing that. Cause for, for all the other reasons, because I know how this, this is, a, this is a place where we would have to be super careful that, that I, that's not our strength. Our strength is in little ones. If, if you have quite frankly, if you have one teenager or you have three newborns ad, addicted to a substance, hang on. I got to go get another car seat. Cause <laughs> I'll th- that's just where I'm wired to work. I don't know why people think I'm crazy and I might be there probably right, but that's okay. That's, that's our strong point. So you work, you work, you know, where, where you were put because, you know, you're there for a reason. So I think, you know, that's just a piece we have to be aware of is that when we said no to a last placement, um, a four-year-old little boy, I'm, I'm like, okay, like, like that's, that's in our wheelhouse. And he had, um, he had four month old quad brothers. I'm like, Ooh, hang on that that would be tough for any parent our house is already pretty full i don't have room to put five more (laughs) kids in here especially i have two in diapers now that would be six kids in diapers i don't know that you can change diapers that fast i could be wrong but i don't think you can so you have to be willing to say no to the things that that aren't there that aren't in your in your wheelhouse so that you can say yes and do the things that you can actually do and make a change in the world and and be helpful to the world and leave it a better place than you found it. No, absolutely. And I think that's amazing work that you and your wife are doing. Um, it's, it takes a lot of strength and willpower. And I can only imagine how much that you probably have in, in caring for the children that you have in your home. And it seems like you're doing a beautiful job. Well, I appreciate that, but the truth is God wired me weird and (laughs) addicted babies don't bother me a bit. Um, it's, it's just what he, what God made me to take care of. Right. I'm here for that reason. I don't know why it doesn't make sense, but it's, that's my strength. And I figured that out and Amanda's the same way. And, 
and we can walk through that pretty pretty easily so yeah you know avni i I really want to thank you for your time today and um just for coming in here and sharing your experience and letting every can you let everybody know where they can find you i know you you said you have some social media presences and everything yes absolutely so i call myself the indian counselor on social media um it's it is very specific in the sense that i do want to open the conversation up not just for my culture but even for other cultures where mental health has been a stigma so follow me at the indian counselor on youtube instagram and tiktok um and then the easiest way for those of you who are in california if you do want to work with me the easiest way to reach out for therapy services would be strengthandselflove.com uh, and it's entirely A-N-D and um, so I hope that you reach out. I've made it very easy where you can simply book a consult on my website and you don't have to email back and forth. Um, you can see my availability even for a free consultation. So, But follow me on social media on any of the tips that you would want in terms of mental health at the Indian Counselor. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to Opney's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have a Patreon account where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. Links to everything are in the show notes in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. So cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. On Parallel <laughs> Studios. <laughs>